Welcome to another Directions Mag podcast, co-hosted with our friends at Eurissa. Welcome everyone. I'm Zan Fredericks, one of the past chairs of Eurissa's Professional Education Committee. I work for the U.S. Geological Survey's National Geospatial Program, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Jason Stoker, to talk about what's new and now in the realm of remote sensing, specifically LIDAR. Now, if you're unfamiliar with LIDAR, LIDAR is an active remote sensing technique similar to radar or sonar, but instead of using radio or sound wave, LIDAR uses pulses of light to map the target. Jason, we're just so glad you could join us for this conversation. And to get started, would you share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure, Sam. Thanks thanks again for having me. Um, Yeah, so my name is Jason Stoker. I've uh, worked for the USGS since about 2002. Um, I currently am the Elevation Science and Applications Lead for the National Geospatial Program uh, based at USGS headquarters, but I live in Fort Collins, Colorado. And I've been using and working with LIDAR for, oh my God, I just looked at the calendar, almost 25 years now. So it's a uh, It's been a long time that I've been uh, using this technology. It sounds like it. What great real world LIDAR expertise we have in you. So relating to the real world, Jason, I wondered if you had some examples or case studies where LIDAR data have been used effectively for various projects or perhaps even some research endeavors. Oh yeah. Well, that's a pretty wide open question there, Zan. Um, I think my answer, my short answer nowadays is what isn't LIDAR being used for? Um, It's been really amazing to watch over the years to see how this technology has um, been adopted by all kinds of real world applications. And um, I think the best thing to mention here is a a study that we just completed uh, last year called the 3D Nation study, which uh, we spent several years going out and interviewing uh, federal, state, local, private sector people uh, to find out all the different ways that people are using LIDAR and what their requirements are, especially as we look towards the, uh, the next generation of the 3D elevation program, which I'll, I'll probably delve into in a little bit. But yeah, well, LIDAR is being used for all kinds of different business uses from you know, looking at uh, how to uh, how to track water supply and quality, ecosystem management, coastal management, uh, forest resource management, rangeland management, um, geologic applications, especially as it relates to resource mining and extraction. Let's see, there's other there's other like um, infrastructure applications such as construction management, looking at things like urban and regional planning. Uh, so many different types of, of um, uses of, of LIDAR now. I don't know if there's any of those in particular you'd like me to um, go on uh, and um, delve a little bit deeper into, Zan. Well, that, that you just, you caught my attention with delve a little bit deeper. Um, I'm always, I having lived for over 20 years in coastal Florida, I always think of coastal applications when it comes to LIDAR. So I was wondering, if you could explain what topobathometric LIDAR is and how it differs from traditional LIDAR technology. Okay, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so a a typical topographic LIDAR system um, usually operates a laser that's in the near-infrared wavelength, uh, which does a really good job at at, 
um, getting uh, returns off of vegetation and, and uh, solid features such as bare earth. Uh, in a topographic ladder system, they, they're typically built using a green laser instead of a, a near-infrared laser. And the primary reason for that is because a near-infrared laser, if anyone has a remote sensing background, knows that um, in the near-infrared wavelength, water absorbs that wavelength pretty well. So the only time you're ever going to get any information from a near-infrared laser is if that laser beam hits the water surface um, in a, in a pretty precise fashion, something called a specular reflection, where basically the water looks like a mirror and, and, and bounces those photons back. But in a, in a topographic or topobathymetric LIDAR system, the green laser tends to penetrate the, the water um, a lot better. And so that uh, type of laser is being used to look at the um, trying to image both the water surface as well as the water column all the way as far down as you can get to possibly see the, um, the ground underneath the water there, either in the coastal areas, as you mentioned, or even inland. Um, and so you can get this nice three-dimensional structural information of the, everything that's uh, going on in that, in that um, a water body that you're that you're imaging so that's um the other nice thing about top of bathymetric lasers because you, you know i'm focusing on the bathymetric part but it also does reflect off of features off of the surface um, above the water as well so we can get a nice continuous three-dimensional image uh, above and below the water surface for the areas that the the aircraft are, are flying over you mentioned inland bathymetry and that explanation right there that you get, you know, both the land and then what's submerged sounds really applicable, um, especially when it comes to inland bathymetry. And I wondered what some of the key applications and advantages of inland bathymetry mapping would be. Oh, sure. Yeah. A, a couple of the big ones, you know, that, that I know, well, obviously you've worked on Zen as well as folks in NOAA and the Corps of Engineers is, is really looking at some of these coastal management things, especially as it relates to resilience, um, hurricane impact uh, forecasting, for example, understanding sea level rise, storm surge, by being able to have this continuous elevation surface above and below um, water, modelers are able to better uh, model how that water is going to move from uh, the ocean on land, uh, especially as it relates to things like storm surge, sea level rise, um, winds from uh, hurricane impacts and, and things like that. That makes sense. And you said with 25 years of experience in the LIDAR realm, and then also with your knowledge of the Topabadi LIDAR. I wondered what advancements or developments specifically in LIDAR technology are you most excited about? Yeah, there's there's still a lot going on. Some of the, the latest developments, I think, the, are some of the same ones that the commercial uh, LIDAR manufacturers have been working on for, for years now, and that's really how to maximize the aerial collection rate um, to get the, the most amount of three-dimensional information as you fly over uh, your area of interest. So being able to have sensors that 
can fly higher and faster and collect as dense or in some cases even more dense amounts of information as they could previously is, is really one of the um, big things that I've seen is in terms of development from the commercial sector. And um, as uh, a consumer of LiDAR and someone who you know pays to get this data acquired for us, uh, the, the ability to lower the cost per square mile that's being acquired, especially in a fixed budget, allows us to collect larger areas with that same amount of funding. So that's that's been a, a really great development. Uh, we've seen uh, systems that have been able to fly higher and collect more dense data, especially over the past five, 10 years. And I've, I've even heard about some applications now. There's some companies that are, are looking to uh, do a, a constellation of LiDAR instruments from space to uh, really increase that that aerial collection rate in terms of uh, being able to image the whole globe perhaps in, in even a single year which just five years ago would have been unheard of um, another thing i'm working on in terms of the the flying higher ability is uh, stratospheric LIDAR is, is something that we're really interested in. Uh, can we put a LIDAR system on a stratospheric platform that flies at you know, 65,000 feet above the ground? And um, similar to a satellite mapping application, you can uh, fly a, a large area um, autonomously and, and be able to collect data there. Um, there's also a couple um, projects I know that are that are being proposed to NASA to collect um, high density, high accuracy data over um, swaths across the entire globe as well. So uh, I'm seeing a lot of these these abilities to collect lidar move higher and higher in in altitude and while trying to maintain this, this high density, high accuracy information that uh, we've kind of grown accustomed to now from, from airborne platform. That's so interesting. So you just mentioned some really cool emerging trends and potential future developments. Uh, how might these innovations reshape the field of geospatial technology? Ooh. Yeah, I think you know, especially some of these applications that are that are enabling um, higher aerial collection rates um, and getting us data in a in a more streamlined pipeline than maybe what we currently have with the airborne collections. Um, I think really enables itself to uh, this this concept of uh, you know high accuracy, uh, high resolution. 3D imaging over time. So if, if there are opportunities to get global LIDAR coverage annually, that's, that's a, a huge change from our more opportunistic types of collections that we've done as part of the 3D elevation program where um, based on our, the requirements that we know, we know people have a, um, a need for high-res uh, data and, and and as the years have gone on the demand for higher and higher resolution and higher and higher accuracy is is um, 
grown, but also this ability to get this type of information more frequently than maybe once per eight to 10 years um, would, would be a real game changer for going from just a, a map at once, use it many times mantra to a more of a, a high resolution monitoring type program, especially as the, uh, the 3D elevation program has almost collected a, a once-over baseline for, for the conterminous U.S. That's a really good point because especially nowadays, I feel like the term digital twin is such a hot topic, right? This idea of having a digital representation of what is on the earth, what is in the earth, what is, you know, use your imagination. And to your point, especially in areas that are impacted by hazards or have very vast and quick infrastructure updates, I think having it as rapidly as you were saying would definitely benefit the geospatial community at large. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how LIDAR itself could be integrated into models to really leverage this idea of a digital twin? Yeah, yeah, and Dan, you're absolutely right. The, the concept of digital twins is, is blowing up as well. And um, I think in order to create a, a, a good digital twin, we're going to have to really focus on how do we integrate a whole bunch of different data streams together uh, to, to get this, this concept that you're talking about, where we can do things like simulations and, and models at the personal scale, you know, which is really what a digital twin is, is kind of gearing for is, you know, this whole um, three-dimensional representation of reality, really. And, and in order to do that, you really want to have high accuracy, um, high resolution data to, to perform on because you can always downsample the data to to look at it and model it in different aspects, but you can't really go the other direction. So um, creating things like a, a digital twin become really exciting when we start talking about this whole idea of making maps personal and, and making simulations at this kind of personal level. And the multi-temporal is definitely one part of it. And, and I think the combination between sensors and systems and integrations of those are, are going to become very important to especially capture um, a lot of the, the localized changes that maybe you don't necessarily want to wait for a, either an airborne or satellite collection, but you can go out and collect it that week with a drone or with a car using mobile, mobile LIDAR mapping systems or you know, in the civil engineering applications, going out and, and collecting data using um, a terrestrial laser scanning or, or ground-based LIDAR that collects you know, centimeter uh, level resolution data for, for things. And then you can integrate all that data together as long as you have a, a, uh, um, a reference frame that, that enables you to uh, you know, tie all this data to, together. And with that, once you have all these great data sets, right, say we find a way to merge them all together, right, we have that common reference frame that allows us to do that. I think the 
The sticking point might be the accessibility, right? How can, how will people use it if they aren't familiar with either GIS tools or software? So I wondered, especially when it comes to LIDAR, if there's notable software tools that are being used to effectively visualize what LIDAR data sets are available. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, the, the transition to cloud computing has really made this explode. So for for 3 up for example, uh, we've been working on this, this transition of our data to the cloud in order to enable things like uh, streaming the point clouds to view and, and manipulate in, in three dimensions. And um, being able to use some of these kind of big data processing tools have um, become really important because as, as anyone that's worked with LIDAR knows, it's it's a lot of data, even at the localized level. To uh, to begin to, to process this, you have to have either uh, pretty beefy computers or you have to have smart ways to break the data up into manageable units and, and run things in parallel. Um, and that's to both for Anna, analytics as well as for visualization. So um, creating things like um, uh, arc trees and ind indices in order to stream and, and you only stream a certain amount of uh, points depending on the level of detail and, and the zoom level that you're looking at. So you're, you're not um, having to pull all the data across the pipe before you do anything like um, analysts analysis or visualization, I think is, is really important. And then in the integration piece, this is where the, the cloud is, is also becoming really valuable to us because there are, there are you know, methods such as data mesh and data fabric um, concepts that enable you to connect to various cloud-based repositories and you can put analysis in front of and visualizations in, in front of these various buckets of data and it doesn't even matter what cloud provider you're in, as long as you have kind of a common operating framework with the data, you can bring data in from, you know, that USGS holds, for example, and NOAA holds or a DOT holds that's mobile mapping data, or even, you know, something like the Forest Service who may have not even LIDAR, but they have point clouds generated from uh, stereo imagery. Um, we can bring all these disparate data together much, much more easily now that, uh, that everything's kind of been um, enabled in, in a, in a cloud-based infrastructure. Which I'm so thankful for because I feel like that will improve the accessibility, especially for those, again, that aren't familiar with GIS or don't have right, the big graphics card or enough memory on their system. Um, yeah, yeah. Would you talk a little bit about the LiDAR Explorer tool? I know you're really involved with that. It's one of my favorite applications to let people out on the landscape know about simply because they don't have to pull the LiDAR to their system to dig into it. So I just wondered if you could give us a little insight into that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so LiDAR Explorer is, is one of our own kind of homegrown um, viewers and, and download tools that you can use where basically kind of we distilled it down to a, a web browser view that just says that just 
show me what point cloud data and what bear what bear dm data do you have show me where it is and you can click on it and you can find out what project it is the information from that project and you can view it streaming in three dimensions like i mentioned through a web browser interface um, which is really nice you don't have to download the data first before you know what it looks like and then um, the, that's kind of the front end piece and then the back end piece is is that cloud-based part that i was mentioning too that it's been really effective in in enabling um, others and, and who can take that data that we're you know managing and provisioning and providing and uh, a lot of times you know there are a lot of folks that can can do like what you were saying you know make make these data usable without necessarily being an expert and they can um, they can do a lot of things better than than we can at USGS in fact and you know, as long as we manage and provision the data properly, um, there's there's a lot of uh, folks out there who have been able to tap into our data and then put their own um, processing and visualization spins on it and provide capabilities and um, uh, ways to, to use the data that we could we just don't have the resources to do ourselves anymore. We're, we're so focused on just making this data available to the end user. It's hard to put all these nice custom tools in front of it anymore. So um, a, a good example of that would be a, a group called Open Topography, who's they've been managing um, NSF funded data for years. Uh, just a few years ago, they were um, able to tap into this into our data in the cloud. And they have a lot of cool uh, processing tools that we do not make available that, that users in the academic community can now tap into 3DEP data using open topography and, and um, access data that way. Um, Microsoft Planetary Computer is, is another one. They have actually taken a copy of our, our data, um, a company called Hobu has uh, converted all of the data that we made available into a, a new file format, cloud optimized point cloud format, which is um, it's similar to a, a cloud optimized GeoTIFF where it's index streamable, all that good stuff, but it's still a LAZ file. So any software that can read LAZ can also read these cloud optimized, G, uh, cloud optimized point cloud data. And then they've been able to use the power of the planetary computer cloud to spin off all these derived products that we simply don't have the resources to do ourselves. Um, one of them that, I, that I'm really, uh, that I like a lot is the height above ground at two meters that they've generated for all the point cloud data that we have in 3DEP, which is not a small amount. I think last time I looked, there's over 54 trillion LIDAR points in our repository and growing every every day as we um, publish more and more data. And then, you know, obviously this was all kind of thanks to Amazon and Amazon making the data available through its public data set program. That's really op opened up opportunities. And 
we see more and more external people tapping into the data and, and making derivatives and, and creating information from this data that we never could with the resources that we have. 54 trillion data points. That's a lot of data. That's a lot of modeling. My goodness. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a lot of data. I mean, when you think about it, you, every one of these points is not just, a, you know, a point per se, but it is a point with a bunch of attributes associated to it. Now, we don't have, you know, adopt a point kind of thing where we tag people's names to every every point in the data set, but we could. Um, you know, that that would be possible to do someday, but I don't I don't know if we'll ever have the resources to give everybody their 150,000 personal points or not. <laughs> no, probably not, but I still love the, when you think of it that way, right? To me, 54 trillion is just a number, but when I break it down and realize that I, if each person in the United States were given some points, that's a lot of points. That helps me visualize the, the amount, right? The immensity of the points that are being offered that are accessible out there, especially with 3DAP data, right? That's free of free of charge without use restrictions that's available out there. And you've been talking about combining disparate data sets, making them available. Um, it, it's all so multifaceted. So how important is collaboration between the experts, between the, the platforms that you mentioned that are serving these data sets? Um, how important is that collaboration from in successfully applying LiDAR technology? Oh yeah, I mean collaboration is is really the reason why the three D elevation program has has been successful. You know, we've never been funded as a national mapping agency to go and march across the country and and collect lidar in a systematic fashion without partners and without this collaboration and and honestly without lidar being a technology that you can collect once and use for so many different applications um, we probably wouldn't be where we are today so it's not only just collaboration isn't only important on the data acquisition side for us but um, also the the ability to uh, take a single data set and look at it in so many different ways has really been beneficial. Um, an example that we're doing right now, if, if you're looking for examples, is you know we're investigating the possibility of acquiring uh, NAEP imagery at the same time or concurrently with 3DEP LiDAR. Um, typically, these, these two programs have operated independently um, and mostly had to do not only with the contracting and, and the, uh, the partners, but the technical issues there where, um, you know, LIDAR, not, I wouldn't say typically, but is often collected at night simply because you get less solar noise coming back. You also, the, the air is a lot calmer for these aircraft to be flying. And obviously you can't collect imagery at night um, also, the NAEP program likes to, uh, and I think it may even be mandated, that they collect their imagery during peak growing season. And we typically collect 3DEP LIDAR um, in, in leaf-off conditions to kind of maximize the chances of us imaging the ground below vegetation. So 
we've been working on a couple, we've had a couple pilots now looking at trying to acquire um, in a single collection. And so um, we're working on, on trying to collect that data together and collaborating with the folks that collect data for NAEP has been really useful for us because now we're, we're asking um, questions that are kind of multidisciplinary to see if there's, um, if there's an answer that can satisfy both groups together. So um, that's, that's been a fun project to work on. It sounds like it, and I especially love the, the idea of reducing the duplication of effort, right? And the idea yeah. that if you could fly once but collect two different data sets, wow, imagine the reduction in the carbon footprint and yep. all of the other resources that are used when making those flights. Again, LiDAR is such a great technology for its great swath width because you're at the flying height you are, right, versus a lower flying height, things like that. But to then further take advantage of that flight to collect additional data sets, I think that would be brilliant and a good way of leveraging the resources among different agencies. So to your point yeah. about collaboration, it does seem like it is key going forward. I mean, it was key before, but it's especially paramount now. Yeah, and you know, mobilization and, and just um, airplane fuel in itself is, is a major expense. So if you can have two collections going on at, using the same aircraft, there, there's definitely potential cost savings there. And this kind of ties back to some of the developments as well. You know, in, in the past, um, the the altitudes that were flown to collect imagery and LIDAR were, were different as well. And with some of the advances in both LIDAR as well as, um, you know, just uh, passive spectral remote sensing imaging, um, that uh, discrepancy has really gone down. And, and there's also the fact that the appetite for higher resolution imagery has kind of um, changed the altitudes and, and the flight plans that are that are being flown now. As I mentioned, you can always downsample as long as you have you know the higher resolution data to downsample from. So a lot of companies will collect imagery at a much higher resolution than maybe they're even contracted for. And then take that higher resolution data and um, and and use that as as a kind of a resell opportunity to um, uh, defray some of the costs that they've they've uh, you know gotten from from flying at those those lower altitudes to get higher resolution data. That makes sense. Do you think they ever run into a challenge though with the storage of such such dense data sets? Um, because I've got to think it's almost exponential, right? If you go from, say, two points per square meter to 20 plus, that data set has to be quite large in hopes that someone's going to want <laughs> to, yeah. to downsample or to at some point leverage that many points. Have you heard of any challenges with data storage such as that? I mean, what I've always heard is there's no problem that money can't solve, right? So. Um, <laughs> It's one of those things, I think that, you know, the cost of storage has gone down a lot and the, the maturation of, you know, these, these cloud, these cloud computing and cloud storage opportunities have, have um, really kind of changed that. So it's not so expensive as it used to be to be able to store and manage these large data sets. A lot of times it, um, 
the processing and you know turning that data into information sometimes the models have not even been developed to handle that level of detail so um, I know there's you know a project that we've been working on um, we have created derivatives you know from three to ten meter resolution because that's the models were developed on um, data that was at that resolution versus you know one meter to half meter dense data so a lot of times even the the models themselves need to catch up with with this data versus you know being able to handle the storage and processing that makes sense i i hadn't thought of it that way but i love the perspective that you bring to that right that it has decreased in cost it's probably just like how back in the day right you've been doing this for 25 years i'm sure that the the cameras installed on the plane systems that were taking concurrent imagery were very low megapixel and nowadays, right, you can not the sky's the limit, but goodness, what an increase in in resolution that you've got from the cameras alone. So it makes sense that just like that increase, the storage costs would decrease. It's just yeah. a factor of time, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's it's that part's so interesting because yeah, when I started, we were all excited about, you know, collecting uh, data in the Hertz range, you know. So we're we're collecting, you know, one to ten thousand points per second and that was a huge deal and now there are systems that can collect two million points per second it's just amazing you know how much that technology has grown since i started my my career and now that makes sense and and to wrap things up what do you find most exciting about the idea of new and now when it comes to developments in remote sensing, specifically in the context of LIDAR? Would it be this, this um, exponential increase in the, the number of points and the kilohertz and, you know, those kind of advancements? Or is there something else that tickles your fancy that you're really excited about? Oh, yeah, that's, that's a pretty wide open question, too. So you started and ended with some wide open open questions, Dan. Um, in this case, you know, the most exciting thing for me is that we are going to be awash in data. We're going to have more data from more different data streams than, than we're going to know what to do with. And it's not just LIDAR. I've seen, a, you know, an explosion in things like SAR satellites and, you know, creating high resolution uh, DSMs from satellite stereo data. We've got the mobile mapping data. We've got UAS data. We've got this explosion of data and this increase in precision and resolution. All of these things are, you know, kind of coming down to um, being able to do things at, you know, this the scale that was unimaginable, you know, just ten years ago, as well as the geodetic precision and the changes in geodesy that are coming that that are going to make these reference frames even more accurate than they were. And then, you know, the, the, the buzzword that we always hear nowadays is, you know, AI and machine learning. And those to me are going to be the tools we're going to need to develop in order to make and extract information out of all of these different data streams and all of this different data that we're just being inundated with nowadays. So 
Um, AI and, and machine learning to me is, is one of the most exciting things that I'm really looking forward to seeing how people are going to take those processes and, and quickly convert this massive data into information that people can use for, for decisions for, um, from planning to just even daily activities, for example. I love that perspective. And I, I too am very excited to see where it will take us in the future. So Jason, thank you so much for uh, an illuminating conversation today about what's new and now in the realm of remote sensing to this all. Thank you so much. Thank you, Zan. <laughs>